Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And on today's show, I am delighted to have with me Klaus Bax of Tiger 21. He's also a professor at Goizeta Business School at Emory. And Steve Friedman, who is also with Tiger 21 and is a serial entrepreneur. He's founded and had successful exits from a number of companies, um, most notably in direct marketing, and is also affiliated with Tiger 21. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah. So as you know, I always start the show by asking my guests, what are the trends in your industry or area of expertise that you think are really important for middle market CEOs to know? So class, I'll I'll let you take that question. Excellent. Well, thank you. So I'm the chair with Tiger 21, and I'm a professor at Emory University. And in both those capacities, I deal a lot with CEOs who either have sold their business or are thinking about selling their business, have come into wealth. And so uh, most of what I see is people that are dealing with those type of transitions. And so you can think about, you know, first, when you're a business owner, uh, you're the center of your business, and it typically defines your identity. And uh, when people are selling their business, subsequently, they've come into, uh, hopefully, they've made some money. Uh, and so they need to find a new identity and how that comes along. So all kinds of challenges come along with that. And I think it's important for CEOs today to think about what that transition is going to look like for them. And so you can think about investing, how to do that. So if people are not familiar with investing or sort of they're new to that or they have now capital to invest, how to do that. You can think about legacy uh, towards your kids. Um, So especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur and you transition from being an entrepreneur into uh, selling your business and making money, then how are your kids going to deal with this this wealth? You might be a wealthy person today. And so uh, the transitions that are going on with that. And then finally, clearly, sort of how do you maximize and exit if you're, if you're a business owner? So with regards to tax planning, stuff like that. So all those dimensions, I think, are critically important. And the reality is I think that most CEOs don't really think about that all too much. They're, they're very busy typically when they run a business and, and um, uh, maximizing the value of that business. And so the transition is really uh, something that often is not thought about a lot. And I think it's important to think about that. And so uh, if anything, I, I think that's an important thing uh, for, for all your listeners on the radio to think about. Great. What about you, Steve? What are you seeing? Well, well, thanks. Uh, I think that to Klaus's point that the, it's a key to prepare to sell your business. And you got to think about, you know, what type of exit might you have? In my situation, I sold first to a majority interest to a private equity firm. And then we grew that business organically and through acquisition uh, and, and sold that again to a public company. And I think one of the keys is to so you were working for the business that you had sold? Correct. Okay. For five years. And I sat on the board and it was great because it gave me a lot of different perspective of experience. I was an entrepreneur for 20 years. And for five years, I was on the board of a corporate a corporate company and got to see kind of how the politics of corporate America worked. So I found that interesting. And how did you find going from being the guy to actually working, being, you know, a peon and being an employee again? Well... I don't know about peon, but, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty close. So, yeah, so I ran the division that, that I sold was a, was a division of the bigger company, which I continued to run. And it was humbling, 
but it was also an amazing experience because when we sold our company, we didn't sell it for the financial money. We really sold it for the intellectual capital. We had felt like we were kind of at a point where we were tapped out and couldn't grow the business any further ourselves. And when I talked to me and my wife, we were partners in the business and I felt like uh, we needed some help growing in the next level. So we had a strategic buyer rather than a financial buyer. So to my earlier point, in trying to figure out who you might want to sell the business to, you want to, that might be a private equity firm, it might be another family, if you have a family business, it might be going public, it may be a public company, but I think it's important to define that audience and then prepare by running your business in the way that they run their business. So for example, if it's a public company, a couple of years earlier, start having your financials audited, start looking at the Sarbanes-Oxley and other regulations that you would face or a buyer would face if they acquired your company. So I think it's really important to run your company like and prepare it as if you're going to be the, the person that you're selling it to ultimately. So if we just break down the Tiger 21 experience and maybe contrast it with some of the other peer advisory groups, you've had a number of peer advisory groups on the show before. What differentiates Tiger 21 and what is the experience? So for example... Have most of your members already exited or are they on the pathway to exiting and you're helping them figure out these, some of these questions that you just asked, Steve, like who is the right buyer for me? Where? Tell us a little bit more about what happens in, in Tiger 21. Sure, sure. So Tiger 21 is more focused on two, really two things wealth preservation and family. So we really look at it and, and the, mo the majority of our members are entrepreneurs who have already had an exit or some liquidity event in their life. And 80% of them na nationwide, we have about 350 members, and I would say about 80% of them are still working in some capacity, whether that's in another operating business, it's in a family office, which will be handling their investments, or working as an investor and in just in, in a, in a multi-asset um, discipline. So I think that the unique thing about Tiger 21 is that it's a safe environment where these people can confide in really what's called their personal board of directors without people in the room having a bias. Because the problem is most of the time that you're speaking with a wealth advisor, you're speaking with a consultant, you're speaking with really any insurance guy or you know a uh, estate planning expert, they all have a bias and they're all trying to sell you something. So the nice thing about Tiger 21 is that there is nobody in the room trying to sell you something and they're all there to give and get help. So in terms of wealth preservation, that these people are already rich. They're in the stay rich business. Mm -hmm. So they're not looking for returns of 40 to 50% on really, really risky angel investing per se. They may have a small percent of their allocation to angel investing, but in general, they're looking to preserve wealth. Mm -hmm. Why is family important? I can see why the wealth preservation piece would be important, but why is family important? Well, I think that the way to look at it is that most of these people who are members of the group are first generation. What that means are these are actually the people that generated the wealth rather than inherited it, which would be second generation. So since these people grew up generally middle class, they've now immigrated to the land of wealth. And just like an immigrant coming to America from another country, they have to assimilate and they have to learn what it's like to be in the land of wealth. But, you know, I know most people that I've encountered want to keep their values, their middle-class values that they were, they were raised with while being in the land of wealth. And the hard part is now that their children and their family will not be first-generation. Ideally, 
they'll be second generation. And you've heard the expression shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves uh, in three generations. And what that means is that generally by the third generation, families have lost their wealth. It's very rare for the Rockefellers or the Kennedys, families that have been, have been able to, to preserve their wealth over multiple generations have done an excellent job because generally education and family planning. So what I mean by that is even if your kids are 10 years old, 18 years old, or 28 years old, educating them on how to deal with advisors, that, which could include wealth advisors, estate planners, attorneys, CPAs. So at any age, you can really start having family meetings to educate if you're a 10-year-old about money, you know, that uh, there's a savings pot, a spend pot, and a philanthropy pot. So it's never too early to start those family meetings. Klaus, what do you think are the biggest differentiators of this mindset that's in the land of wealth versus the, you know, middle class or non-wealth mindset that Steve was just talking about? Like, it sounds like they're just two different paradigms. What do you think differentiates those paradigms? Uh, That's a great question. So I try. (laughs) There you go. Um, So I think one of the biggest differentiators is that money in general is something that you don't talk about with other people. And I think that that is a common theme for most people that grow up middle class. It's, you know, uh, you know, I think for most people that is a that is not something that they know well from their parents or from their family. And so to I think one of the key things in order to help the next generation be financially successful is to have them understand wealth and what comes with it, the responsibilities that come with it. And it's got to be an open topic. And Steve already mentioned family meetings. It's one of the things that successful families, successful families do. The other thing that I would say is, and more broadly than just this point, is that when you grow up middle class and those values that you have, and typically if you're an entrepreneur that comes into wealth, uh, people have done extremely well. uh, And these people are talented to have built that wealth. And so the next generation, you know, how are they going to get those same values, right? So you may have grown up scrappy when you built your business and you worked hard in order to, to get where you are today and, and you hustled. And so the question is, you want to you know, impart those values um, to your kids, but your kids actually are probably growing up wealthy, uh, especially if you have young kids and t- Tiger members have kids in all eight age ranges, but if you have young kids especially, they might grow up with wealth. And so how do you deal with that? It's in some ways you don't want to say, well, you don't have any money because you want to kind of prepare them for the point where that's going to come. In the other states, you want to make sure that they appreciate how much work it took and you want to give them those same values to the next generation. And so uh, navigating that is, I think, one of the biggest challenges there is. It is very hard to, to do that. And as Steve said, people lose their wealth on average in three generations. It's gone. Uh, by the third generation. And so um, ways to preserve that, I think, for anybody that has made some money, and, and it almost doesn't matter how much, it's sort of, I think, a critical component. Yeah, I'm going to ask maybe a, a, a silly question. Um, one of the things I've never understood about this conversation is why are people so stuck on their kids? Like, why don't they give the money to somebody who's going to do something good with it if they know that their kids are just going to waste the money? Um, I mean, I'm not saying that they should make their kids suffer, um, or even go through the hardships that they went through. But um, to me, it would seem, maybe because I don't have children, <laughs> but you know, maybe it seems to me like a more worthy you know, use of the money would be to give it to somebody who's actually going to do something good with it. Uh, absolutely. And when you, when you see, see that uh, at Tiger, there are many people who, for whom philanthropy is a big goal. And so um, 
they want to give most of their money away to another cause that they're passionate about and only a little bit of money to their kids, whatever that degree of money is. So you absolutely see that uh, that degree of variation. On the other hand, there are people who just say, I want to give it to my kids. So I think there's more personal preference. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And I think, of course, it's it's finding the right mix and the right time to get involved with philanthropy for our members. And that's another incredible thing that we learn about in the group is, you know, these people generally have not been big in philanthropy because they didn't have any money. So now that they have money, you have to be careful as to who who you give it away to. But to your point, I mean, that's why you see people like Warren Buffett, Sarah Blakely, and Bill Gates signing the Giving Pledge um, because they've done a lot of research and they feel comfortable with it. So at our annual convention that Tiger 21 puts on once a year in the first quarter, we have a philanthropy panel. And some of the previous guests that we've had on that panel include Ted Turner's um, person to the United Nations who manages that foundation. We had uh, Maria Shriver. We had the Kennedy family uh, person who did that. And Dikembe uh, Mutombo was there. Yeah, Mutombo yeah. from here in Atlanta. Dikembe, the basketball, okay. the Hawks guy. Okay, sorry, a sorry, very not tall player. Yep, and he has a his foundation where he really helps people in the Conga. So I think that a lot of our members have been exposed to some big philanthropists uh, each each year in their individual group settings, and then also at our national convention. So it's it's certainly an area that our, our group wants to learn about. Yeah, and so for most people, this is a new area, especially if you did not grow up with wealth. This is sort of a new area, and learn how to navigate it, how to think about it. What are worthy causes? How do you figure out what are worthy causes? How much should you give? How much should you not give? These questions that you ask around, what is the right number to give to your kids? Um, these are all great questions, and there's no right or wrong answer, but it's sort of navigating that and coming for yourself to a good answer to that. And there's not one right answer, but everybody has their own individual path. And I think what Tiger does um, is help people navigate that path. Hmm. One important thing is to also understand the tax consequences of giving money away. So if you're going to do it, you want to do it also in a smart way where you can maximize those tax savings. Hmm. So let's go back to the the family piece. Um, as you think about it, you mentioned one strategy for making sure that the entrepreneur transfers not just the money, but the values associated with the money to their the second generation. Um, I think you mentioned the family meetings and you mentioned um, making sure that they are well aware of how to work with advisors. Are there any other specific approaches that you think could be helpful to um, listeners who you know are struggling with that, how to make sure that their kids don't get spoiled, for lack of a better word? Well, I think the the number one word, really, to sum that up in one word, is communication. I think that in past generations, it's been taboo to talk about money. You know, I mean, I know several people who are in their 70s who might have folks still alive in their 90s, and they didn't speak about wealth to this day. So they still don't know to this day the financial position of their parents. They don't know what they may or may not inherit, and they might not know what the parents, uh, you know, would like to be done with the estate. So I think that in this generation, we're seeing a lot more communication at a younger age. Instead of hiding it, explaining to your children what a mortgage payment is, what a car payment is, that the food on the table, you know, does going to Publix cost money? Where does that money come from? So it can really start in any type of education and communication. But I think the the number one way to make sure your kids aren't spoiled or understand money is to communicate to them the value of what it takes to earn and save a dollar. Absolutely. And even to add on to that, um, those meetings can start at a young age. And so um, we have people in our group who've started meetings uh, with their children and with their family in which they talk about even young children, nine, 10 years old, where they say, 
let's, you know, let's figure out where we're going to give $100, which, which, passions, uh, which causes are you passionate about? Um, the other big piece to those meetings is when, you know, when they inherit the money at some point, you want to make sure that if you have multiple children, that they can work together on these decisions. Um, uh, for example, around giving or around investing, right? Especially if there's a charitable organization, sort of to figure that out and to work as a family to understand how to give away money and what kind of causes and how to do that. And so uh, communication is critical. And I think uh, families that have done this successfully, uh, which is sort of where this comes from as a best practice, they have family meetings every quarter, which are sort of you spend a day together and you talk about what's going on. And as children get older, you can, you know, change the topic clearly and kind of get more involved. But it can start at an early age to kind of start understanding what, you know, how do we give away money? What what are we passionate about? Or for people to say, you know, another thing that I've heard is where people would invest money. And if, you know, if, if the investment money does well, we go to, you know, we use that money to go on vacation and we go a little further than we otherwise would go with a certain mm-hmm. benefits to doing that. But it's it's gener- uh, generating an interest in the stock market or in investing, whatever it may be, what is the right level for a child. But sort of thinking about those those elements and just getting the, giving them some experience with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one is sort of information and, and communicating about your own wealth to your children. And the second piece, I think, for them to work together to communicate and share and learn about investing because at some point they're going to inherit that money and or a piece of it. And so they need to invest it. And so strategies for how to tackle that. And I think that's sort of an ongoing process. And so as Steve was mentioning, if, you know, if you're, besides even if you don't, if, you know, if you have children, you say in your 70s and you're 90 and you've never communicated to your children around wealth and what that means, then not only do they inherit, they didn't know they would inherit the money, it's sort of like afterwards, it's sort of, they have no idea how to make decisions around that. Um, and so that's really what you try to try to accomplish by communicating early and often and sort of have that as an ongoing process. And hopefully they can replicate that model for their kids. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's great. And just a couple of ideas that might be um, that maybe it can be implemented by our listeners here are that um, to Klaus's point, one example is uh, I heard this from a friend and I thought it was really great was he had he had two kids and what he did was he took a thousand dollars. You could do it with a hundred dollars or any any amount. And he gave, let's say, a hundred dollars to each kid. And he said to them, I want you guys to give this away to your favorite charity. Then he gave them a hundred dollars together. And he said, I want you to now work together and decide together who to give this hundred dollars to. And what that does is it gets your children at a young age realizing that they need to work together because what's going to happen down the road if you're part of a of a bigger family that's built a, a good bit of wealth is your children are going to have to hopefully work together well. That's where things really go wrong. It's when families can't work together. So another great example I heard was, and uh, Klaus alluded to it, was he gave his three kids, I think, $1,000. And he said, I'm going to give you the next year to invest this in the stock market. And whatever that is worth at the end of the year is what we're going to use to go on our family vacation. And if it does great, we're going to go to the the Ritz on the beach in Maya and South Beach. And if it doesn't, we're going camping in the uh, Georgia mountains. So uh, it was it was pretty humbling. I, I think they went camping, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, you know, they have some time to mature as entrepreneurs and investors. But one, one last thing about family meetings before we close that topic was, you know, one of one of our members, at least one of our members had a family meeting and he's got two young, two young kids and he had a professional facilitator come in and 
actually mediate the meeting. So you can even take it as far to have this meeting in a boardroom, maybe at your company or at a friend's friend's company, but even even bigger, you can start at your kitchen table, but then you can graduate this where you're having a formal meeting and you actually have someone to mediate it. So they're talking and that that a lot of times adds credibility to the whole process. Wow. I want to back up and just um, revisit something that we that you mentioned. So you mentioned that most of your members are entrepreneurs who've had a, a liquidity or exit event. Um, and I know, at least in my work with people, that question of exit strategy is often just largely goes unaddressed. They just, they just don't want to talk about it, don't have an exit strategy. And I would love to um, have you weigh in, Steve, on how, how you get yourself to start thinking about an exit strategy. Sometimes people don't want to confront it because it involves confronting mortality, you know, um, or aging. Uh, and what the mindset that differentiates entrepreneurs who are able to exit successfully from those that don't and have their exit land on top of them like a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> That's the uh, multi-million dollar question. So you uh, you hit you hit it right on the nose there. So I think that a few things that, uh, that come to mind for me would be one is that you have to take a step back and look at your business from from 600 feet uh, or wherever and see what role do you play in the business? And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, and I know I certainly did for a very, very long time, I played a very, very big role in my business. And I always thought to myself, God, my business, could my business exist without me? And I thought for a long time that it couldn't. But the number one rule to remember is no business is or should be dependent on one person. So I think the key is working on your business and not in your business. Being able to set up a business that you could extricate yourself from that business and it can still run very, I won't say perfectly because no one's going to run your business as well as you can, but well enough that there's value because that's the first step to being able to have an exit is to sell a business that's not dependent on any one or few people to have assets Maybe it's an asset-based business, but in a service business, the business that I had, the, the, the biggest assets went up and down the elevator each day, which were the people, because you know, I was in the marketing and advertising business. So, and as I alluded to earlier at the beginning of the show, you got to figure out, you know, who your buyer might be. But even before that, what is my succession planning? Do I have children, other relatives that might want to take over this business and grow it? Is it more important to me that this business be in the family for generations to generations? Or is this a business that I just see myself working until I'm near retirement age and then I'll just close it, you know, at that point? There's many people in in retail and there's many businesses that do that where they may not have a lease that's assignable, you know, and the, the, a lot of the value of the business is in, is in the lease, making sure they have a business. It's so critical. You mentioned that there was this shift in mindset where you went from being the person who was the center of everything to, okay, was there an event or how did you start to get the willingness to have the business, to separate yourself from the business? It's, it's tough. It really, it really is tough to try and pull yourself out. In my case, I was a, I was, my background's accounting, so I'm a CPA, but I'm also, I love sales. So, you know, when to be an entrepreneur, you have to love sales. And, you know, I think accounting is a great background to have because I think it's the language of business. You know, you go to France and you speak French. If you're going to run a business, you need to speak accounting so you can read the financial statements and understand debits and credits. But I think the way to do it was that we got to a point where, you know, we were, we were, very successful. We had a lot of sales. We were just constantly working. And it was really, 
the point that it was overwhelming my family, my wife and I, and I just felt like we were talking about it too much at home, became too big of a part of our lives and our life wasn't in balance. So I think that really drove us to hire a CFO, to bring somebody in, bring in the professionals that you need to delegate and trust in order to make that business a more everlasting business that will is much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And how did you develop the the discipline around adhering to the plans that you developed? Because it's one thing to to say that you want to do it. It's another thing to follow it all the way through until you are able to go public, which is what happened with you, yes? Uh, well, we wound up selling the first time to a private equity firm and we maintained a, a significant ownership and then we sold it to a public company. So we didn't actually go through the going public process. But I think that's why, you know, those five years between when I sold it in the first time in 2007 and the second time in late 2012 was really critical because it helped me learn that discipline by being around other really smart people and realizing you're not the only smart person in the room um, being able to to learn. And I think that's a big thing that really ties back actually to Tiger 21 is that, you know, the people in this room have all been successful, the people in the Tiger 21 around the table, and they all have egos. So the key, and I think Klaus in, in our chapter in Atlanta does it beautifully, is being able to give each person a forum to speak and get their questions answered and feel like they're getting value out of the meeting, but without letting any one person dominate, because we've got a lot of type A personalities who who could tend to dominate. So I think that um, being somebody who who understands they don't know what they don't know and is willing to bring in consultants or whatever in a, in a business, back to a business now, and bring in you know people that can help them prepare their business for sale will help keep them accountable that they're actually doing those steps. Yeah, so uh, exactly as you said, Steve, when, when people are in the room, um, I think you got to have something to give and you got to have something to take. I think it's very important. And so to add on to the business piece here, I think one of the critical things to be successful and why maybe you asked this question originally, why are people scared to think about an exit and why is that not sort of top of mind? It's, I think often, and this is sort of at a higher level than what you just spoke about, Steve, when you think about sort of, you know, the nitty gritty and sort of getting ready to transition, it's sort of a new identity, I think, for a lot of people. And it's scared, scary to think about sort of like, what's this new phase of my life going to look like? I've done this for a long time. I really enjoy what I'm doing. And maybe it is good for me to transition, but you know, they're hard questions, right? To figure out what comes afterwards and how to think about that. Um, you know, what is my business worth? How is the sales process going to go? I haven't done that before. And sort of to start on that road is, you know, is not as familiar as perhaps building the business. And so that's that's maybe why people don't look at it as often as they otherwise would. Yeah, it's a true reinvention. You have to reinvent yourself. And I know that that was a big thing for me is, you know, I was a marketing and sales guy and didn't know the difference between a muni bond, a corporate bond, and didn't know what a structured note was. And these are all things that most people who sell businesses are experts really in one thing, in their niche. And when they sell a business, you get calls from a lot of the big, the big uh, financial wealth managers, you know, hey, turn your money over to me. But I think for me, I've learned through that process that it's very important to understand everything you invest in. If I can't understand it, then I can't invest in it. So it's really, you know, and there are some people who just simply don't want to learn that and don't want to take the time. They're not interested in knowing what they're invested in. And those are not the target market for Tiger 21. Our target member is somebody who is more hands-on and is interested in understanding why or why not a particular investment might be good for their portfolio and why that same investment may be good or, good or bad for their family. Mm. And one of the biggest things that we see as people 
transition to managing their portfolio is that the skill set required to be a successful investor is typically very different from the one that makes you successful as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And if we think about entrepreneurs, yeah. it's typically fast-paced. we got to sell items. And so um, it tends to be a very, I think, intense life, whereas being a good investor often requires the opposite skill set, which is being patient, not making decisions right away. Um, yeah, and so th- sure. that's, a, that's a very different type skill set. And so, um, <laughs> you know, n- besides even learning about just what muni bonds are, what corporate bonds are, uh, what are structured notes, uh, just the lingo of that world. Uh, it's even the mindset, I think, that a lot of people need to transition um, as, they, as they sell their business. I've learned a lot of acronyms in the last couple of years. It's, <laughs> there it's you great. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I want to turn the conversation as I, I, as I do to you, the relationship between my guests and sure. how you are supporting each other. And uh, I, one of the things that fascinates me about Tiger 21 is this notion that you talk openly about your financial situation. As you mentioned, Klaus, like this is a one of maybe even the biggest taboo in human interactions is well, how much money you do you make and you know, what do you what are you worth and all that kind of stuff. People, people's spouses sometimes don't even know how much money they make or their children, as you mentioned, Steve. Tell me a little bit about how that actually works. Like how do you get people feeling safe enough in this room to Talk honestly about their financial concerns, worries, their financial situation, and what's really happening. Yeah, I think it, that, that's a road, as you as you rightfully say, it's a very challenging thing to do. And many people, this is you know, people are apprehensive about disclosing that piece of their life to to a group that's not even their direct family. And so, it's a process that grows, but it's a part of what the tiger experience is like. And and the truth is, uh, because you cannot or you cannot, most people don't talk about it with anybody else. So to have a forum where everybody does that, where there's, this is a shared thing that this is part of being on the group that people basically open their kimono and show, show their financial picture, um, that creates a bond and it creates a environment where, hey, we've all seen it. And, and the reality is, is how, you know, having gone through this uh, for a number of times is seeing people's wealth and what they make in the end, it's just a number. And the reality is, is you know, everybody at Tiger has, you know, has made significant money. Um, and in the end of the day, it's just a number. And so people deal with the same type of struggles and, what, and what's going on. So Yeah, no, I would echo that. And I think that we, we go even further, really, than just talking about money, because there's the whole concept of the portfolio defense at Tiger, which is kind of the cornerstone of the, of the membership process. And what that is, is once a year or so, depending on how many members you have in the group, once a month, a member will actually present to the group his balance sheet and show, you know, here's the type of assets I have, here's how they're invested, here's my liabilities. And, you know, and really they drive the conversation by saying, what, what is it that I want to get out of this portfolio defense today? I did mine back about three months ago, which was my first one. And, you know, you want to come in there and, and, and know what you want to get out of it. And the group works with you. It, this is not at all, you know, it's called the portfolio defense, which is probably something that needs to be renamed because like, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, yeah, it sounds worse than it is, but it's really in a carefrontational way where the members will discuss with you and say, you know, an example could be a Coke executive there is no Coke executive, just so you know, who might have 80% of his wealth uh, in 
in Coke stock. And, you know, obviously a common recommendation would be diversify out of that. But usually it's not as simple as that. But what you do find is that a lot of people are most invested in them in their business or what they know. So, you know, and these are good problems to have. You know, the, the problem is when you think about the people you grew up with and went to elementary school with, the people you went to high school with, the people you went to college with and your next door neighbors, can you can you have this conversation with any of them? You can't. The, and the answer is generally not because these are, if you told your neighbors your, these problems, they would think you're crazy and they would think, you know, oh, he doesn't have problems, but everyone has problems. And to them, the problems are all in perspective. So being able to share these types of things with a with a group in a trusted environment, which is the key word there. And it's, of course, 100% confidential. We have confidentiality agreements, but beyond that, it's it's really, you know, an important uh, aspect of the group is confidentiality and privacy that you share this because you're getting so much out of it. You learn just by listening listening to someone else's portfolio presentation. Uh, and the portfolio uh, presentation, I should point out, is based in two parts, a quantitative and a qualitative. So the quantitative is the numbers that make that person up. But more importantly, it's the qualitative, which talks about how you became who you are. The one that I did for my presentation was eight pages, which I think set a group record. Uh, I feel bad for uh, for our for our chair here, Klaus, who had to uh, review that and and help. But it, it took I think the average person in our group about forty five minutes in the, to read that, and we we sent that out the, the couple of days before so they could read that prior to the meeting. But really, everyone has some experiences that have shaped them and become the type of person, the type of investor. Uh, that they are. And that's really the important thing. You get to learn a lot about the person when they do their their PD uh, because of that qualitative section. Yeah. And so if, if, if you think about those experiences, I would say without a doubt, it's potentially the most scary thing, but it's also the most uh, exciting thing about Tiger meetings. Um, even if it's not your PD, it's just listening how people go about their portfolios and how they think about that is a very powerful experience. Uh, and if you do it yourself, like Steve said, um, you know, this is really your two and a half, three hours for you to ask any question to your personal board of directors. Like, what would you advise me to do? And so this can range from selling a business to making an investment, you know, legacy planning, maybe a family problems. Buying because, a yacht, buying a plane, selling a yacht, selling a plane. Absolutely. Uh, all those type of things you can ask whatever question you want um, to the group and ask for advice and the, mm -hmm. the the amazing thing is that most people you never discuss this and so there's some things that you will hear in those meetings that are sort of I think as a collective as a group we would all come to those conclusions but um, it's amazing to see that you know many people have just not thought about certain things and they get to be pointed out during those during those uh, portfolio reviews. Hmm. And to an earlier point that you made, many of these topics may be things that they have not discussed with their spouse, and you know they may or may not be comfortable. They may come to us before they speak to their spouse. Hmm. And 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 even or they might not be interested. Right, spouse might not be interested. Sometimes these investments are complex and sort of you know like potentially in many relationships, it might be one person kind of takes care of the financial picture. Um, and so, um, yeah, this is a place where you can get feedback and, you know, truly express your, your deepest fears and hopes and get feedback from the group. One thing that I mentioned is, is you said that the, at the end of the day, the portfolio was just a number. Right. But in many cases, people feel like their identity is not just wrapped up in their business, but it's wrapped up in their net worth, right? So they identify net worth with self-worth. Um, and I'm wondering if you find that phenomenon 
um, is President Tiger 21 or have people, people in your group transcended what is, I think, very common for a lot of people, especially in America, right? And in, in our society, we're, we tend to be pretty materialistic. Uh, well, I mean, it's funny. You know, honestly, I, I don't think of it that way. And, and I really have not ran across members that, that do think of it that way. I think that it's, it's a method of keeping score to some extent. I mean, I think that people that are competitive, you know, might keep score that way. But I really do not do not see it as as wrapped up in, in an identity. And I think also as you the older you get and the wiser you get and the more you hear some of our guest speakers, you realize that really the limited resource that we have left in our life is actually time. Time is more scarce than money for most of us who are in our middle aged and, and, and higher. So I think that the most valuable thing is is life experiences and what can I do? Well, how can I use that money? to have the best life experiences at the time that I have left. And for many people, you know, at the end, as I said, it just truly becomes a number. Yes, you look at the number, it's sort of when you see it, but at the end of the day, everybody around the table has had, no matter sort of how you compare within the group, everybody in that group has done phenomenally well. And as Steve said, their scarce resources time, it's not money. These people all have plenty of money to, to um Yeah, there gets to, to a point of, dimin- of diminishing returns where well, an extra... You know, hundred thousand dollars or even million dollars change your life, and really, you know, the answer is no. Mm. So we, before our listeners, um, for your benefit, we were talking a little bit about GV Financial, and one of the things that they said when both Mark and um, one of his advisors Sherwin, when they came on the show, was this notion that um, you know, money and the happiness curve, and how after mm-hmm. a certain limit, as you were saying, there's diminishing returns, um, and so. Either there's philanthropy. What else do people do with the after you've kind of reached that plateau? You're not getting any happier with the money. What what do you do with everything above the plateau? Well, I I think besides just thinking about clearly, you can you can do ex, you can have experiences that are otherwise hard to be had. So you can do very unique things that maybe you've dreamt of doing and that you can now experience that you would never be able to do before. Uh, for example, you know. You want to give me an example? Yeah, you want you want you want to go. I'm just <laughs> buy a buy a Tesla. You want to buy a Tesla. Uh, you want to you want to go spend time with Tiger Woods, and you want to get a special ticket to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can buy experiences, and and those are very powerful things that you can do. Or you can spend time with your family, right? So many entrepreneurs have spent a lot of time building their business, and so this is a way for them to say, "Hey, I don't have to work anymore. Now I can spend time with my kids." Maybe recapture some time that they weren't able to spend prior when they were building mm-hmm. the business. But, you know, outside of that, you, you ask a very good question. And so I think some of it, and you correctly alluded to that, Steve, is, you know, it's keeping score. And I, I think I would be remiss to say that people don't like making money when they're in the Tiger group. They were good at making <laughs> money to get there. And they still like it when they're when they're in the mm-hmm. group, even though sort of all the, the right stuff tells you, you should care about other things besides your money. Uh, I think I think most people still like to make money. And I have a theory, and you guys will weigh in on it, but I suspect that that's a part of the mindset that keeps people from breaking out of the of, of the middle classes. Once you get to the point where you don't need the money to survive, people don't know what to do with it, right? So they just go and make trouble for themselves, or they give the money to their kids, and the kids make trouble for themselves and, and the family. Um, so I I mean, that's the that's the reason why I asked that question. It's mm-hmm. like after you get to that threshold where you don't need the money to survive or to provide, you know, the basic comforts of life, you know, what, what happens with the rest of it? Well, one cool thing that I've seen is 
a few people do is create a family tradition. And what I mean by that is maybe you buy a house in, you know, Hilton Head or on the beach, if you like beaches or the mountains, you buy mountains. You make that a place that you have an annual Thanksgiving dinner for your whole extended family. Or you, you know, take your whole extended family once a year on a trip to the Caribbean or a cruise or whatever. So um, I think trying to do things that that involve relationships and people with that money that will bond people together is one example of something that could be done with the money. But obviously, the, there's there's a whole universe full of them. And that's why a lot of the members do, do turn eventually to philanthropy, uh, to your earlier point, in doing something good with the money. Great, great. Well, one of the questions I like to ask is if there's anything new or exciting happening at Tiger 21 or in your businesses or your practices or your life that you think... Uh, our CEO listeners should be interested in. So, Klaus, I'll turn that over to you. Yeah, so we've uh, we've been active with Tiger for the last uh, year. We started in uh, October of 2014, and wow. so you're a young group. Yeah, we built we built uh, a group in the last year, which has been uh, very successful. And so, um, I'm just starting a second group here in Atlanta. So, I'm very excited about that. So, a group typically consists of about 15 members. Um, so. We're really trying to find the right people to come to the group. So it's really, uh, it's a two-way street, so to speak. It's a carefully crafted group, if you will. So um, yeah, we're looking uh, to uh, to build that second group. I think it will build a, a greater momentum between the different uh, two groups that we'll have. And they'll, they'll operate as one big chapter here in Atlanta. So very excited about that. Yeah. So. Yeah. What about you, Steve? Yeah. You know, I've enjoyed, I've, I've done, you know, when you're a member of Tiger 21 in Atlanta, you're actually a member everywhere. So we've got chapters in in New York, we actually have eight chapters where New York uh, is, was our home base and where it was founded. Uh, D.C. has three chapters. South Florida has three chapters. Dallas, two. Houston, L.A., you know, you name it, all around the uh, San Diego has them. So I think that I've traveled to quite a few of these different chapters and sat in on meetings. And the groups are very welcoming. And it's really a great way to see what's going on in other areas of the country because you may you tend to when you're doing investing you tend to especially say real estate deals you tend to get in lots of deals in the place that you live so you have a lot of concentration of investments in that area so by now going to the Dallas group or Houston I've made some friends over there and start seeing the deals that they're seeing so I can diversify my investments by investing in those other places um, you know, Klaus and I went to Washington, D.C., and we sat in on a, on a chapter meeting there. We saw an interesting, uh, you know, investment, uh, an electric bike company that was launching. So we saw them, they're raising capital. So it's just a great way. The nice thing about Tiger, if you're going to a meeting in New York anyway for your business, you can drop into a meeting um, or you can just schedule a trip and go for, for a Tiger 21 meeting. Absolutely. And if listeners want to get in touch with you to hear more about anything that they've heard today, class, how can they, how can they do that? Um, so uh, feel free to reach me by email, which is class.box at tiger21.com. It's K-L-A-A-S dot B-A-K-S at tiger21.com. You can find lots of information about Tiger 21 also on the web with www.tiger21.com. Uh, so there's plenty of information on there. And, you know, if listeners are interested, feel free to uh, to reach out to me. What about you, Steve? Uh, the best way to reach me is actually my personal email, which would be SSF, that's Sam, Sam Frank, 910 at gmail.com. Thank you very much for a great show. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.